is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer and Nashville studio great Steve Brewster. I had the opportunity to sit down with Steve in his awesome home studio in Franklin, Tennessee, and we talked about many of the changes that have happened in Nashville since his move here in 1988. Just a few of the artists that he's recorded with and performed with include Bob Seger, Peter Cetera, Amy Grant, Dierks Bentley, Faith Hill, Kenny Loggins, Chicago, Richard Marks, Michael W. Smith, CeCe Winans, and Tony Braxton, just to name a few. Steve's insight on the recording industry is just amazing. He has been through all the changes, from two-inch tape to now the digital age. There was a time not too long ago where all his work was in the studio, and he went almost a couple years without performing live at all. It's safe to say that Steve wasn't singularly focused on becoming a session drummer, but from a very early age, he realized that being a session drummer was part of his DNA. If you use the hashtag working drummer, we'll include you on Instagram and our stories. If you want to support what Zach and I are doing here at the Working Drummer Podcast, there's a couple ways that you can do that. On the homepage of our website, workingdrummer.net, you can find a button for PayPal. There's also a button that is a link to our Patreon page. Patreon is an easy and convenient way to support the podcast on a regular basis. Donations start at a dollar and you have access to the bonus material that we're providing on a monthly basis from past guests. As always, any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. As we like to mention, we love to hear from our listeners. I received an email through the website from a Joshua Van Ness requesting Steve Gorman from the Black Crows as a guest on our podcast. And Steve has been on our list of potential guests from the very beginning of this podcast. So uh, we are trying to make that happen. After sending an email in response to Joshua's email about Steve being a guest, his response was, uh, best of luck getting Steve on the show. I have to say, I didn't expect a response. So while I have your attention, I'm such a fan of the podcast. When I started listening, I only expected to hear a lot about technique and chops. I love your podcast because I learn about life with every episode. B picked up a few drum hacks along the way, too. You actually don't even have to be a drummer to enjoy your podcast. Again, keep up the great work. Sincerely, Joshua Van Ness. Joshua, that was awesome, and um, thanks for your permission to read that email. We love that feedback. Uh, We love that uh, y'all reach out to us with your thoughts and ideas about what it is that you want to hear. So thanks for that, Joshua. Hey, if you're in Nashville in August, there is the Music City Drum Show, and the Working Drummer Podcast is going to be a part of that. We're not sure in what capacity, but we are definitely involved in the Music City Drum Show, and I hope to see you there. And if you see us, please come over and say hello. As always, you can find us at workingdrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. Here's my conversation with the great Steve Brewster. You know, it was just one of those stories where you're like, this turned out right. You know, we did the demos. We created kind of a, a beginning sound for this guy, a beginning direction, kind of a launch. And they're going with it. 
that doesn't happen very often. You know, they're going with the same band, same producer, and we end. You know, we we cut in Ocean Way, but all those Dirks records, man, we cut with four piece, acoustic, one acoustic, one electric, bass and drums, nothing else. You know, and I think that's why those records. That's one reason those records ended up. Um, being having their own voice in the sea of records of country records coming out there there's like we played you know the first day he he walked into ocean way you know it's that big room you know and he 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 walked out with like this this like life-size you know like promotional cardboard thing of you too and put it out in front of us <laughs> and said, you know, he's obviously, he's kind of country and has kind of a bluegrass right. background. So, And then he said, I want this combined with this, <laughs> you know, basically is what he said, Yeah, you know. And that's what, that was kind of the launching, the genesis of, you know, where we took it, you know, and that real that whole concept kind of developed by two and record two and three. It had kind of turned into a you could really hear those two elements, you know, in it, you know, in his music. So that was really cool. It was really really cool to be a part of 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 that, like of being a part of an artist's evolution of sound and finding their voice you know there is a unique uh, uh timbre to 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 that record that, yeah what, what, what was i thinking and stuff like that you can you can definitely hear a difference of what was going on there yeah and i think it it it's definitely has served him really well and i and it seemed like it took a few records before then what that record did, that he did maybe four years ago or five years ago that seemed more bluegrass yeah. 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 Like, and then he changed after that. He, and I totally get it. I totally understand. He, he, he made a, like, he just kind of wiped the slate clean. Mm-hmm. New producer, new band, mm-hmm. new, new everything, mm-hmm. you know, because he had to. He just, he just, he needed to because he had something else he wanted to do. I get it. Yeah. But that one little, Ramping, you know, I think it was four, it was either four or five records. The overall picture that you're painting here is that when an artist, a single artist comes to town or comes to the studio and they connect with the session players, the producer, you become a part of their sound, their identity. And if if they're all in it and they subscribe to what you're putting down then you're kind of help creating the brand. Mm-hmm. And if the first record or the first couple songs really are appealing and create the audience, then there's a formula there that can't be de- denied. Yeah, yeah. I love being, you know, that's always been my, I think, uh, you know, one of my strengths, maybe my, uh, you know, strongest offering you know Mm -hmm. is climbing inside a song 
like a singer songwriter. Yeah. This is an artist. This is their life. This is their song. They're writing. A, this is you know, this isn't just some outside song that they're going to put a pretty voice to, from someone else. They are. It's kind of a total package, and to I love climbing inside those things and 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 navigating the dynamic of of these songs that are near and dear to these singer songwriters. Right. You know, um, I find great joy in in doing that and becoming a part of the the forward motion and the evolution uh-huh. of of their like you said their brand or their their sound or their 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 statement mm-hmm. you know their 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 whatever it is they're trying to do um so that was really cool she heard me on a record this artist named Pierce Pettis who's this unbelievable singer songwriter um and uh, we recorded his whole album uh, with just every song was a different setup. There was never really a, a, a standard drum set. It was in someone's basement. He and I, him on acoustic and vocal and me, did the whole record. Mm-hmm. And then they added stuff right. around it, very little stuff. And uh, she, her and her producer at the time caught wind of that record and that's why they hired me. They were like, "We want that." Yeah. And 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 what you know, I really think what they were hearing was me getting really close to the heart of the song. Is you know? there something you can tap into to verbalize like what it is that you do to tap into the song? Uh, ears, listen, heart. Open your heart. Open your ears and try to, knowing that I have, I have my bags mm-hmm. full of what, of I could do this. Right. Or I, I, I've got stuff that I'm going to, I can pull out right now, yeah. you know, but listen to, you know, being able to be you know, have sensitive ears, you know, right. to what they're trying to accomplish and just kind of, and just staying in touch with your intuitive musicality, you know, I think um, instinct. Does lyrical content like inform you? Some. Uh, To be honest, I mean, yes. Like the overall thing that they're saying, yes. I turn that off really quick, though. Okay. Because once I get it, you know, I'm I'm on a session. Once I get it and the overall picture of it, you know, um, I'm emotionally involved at that point. I'm emotionally connected to it. Um, Now, that being said... The, the vocal phrasing is extremely important to me. Yeah. So, you know, and the vocal dynamic, like, okay. like, like from from beginning to end, the vocal dynamic of the song and the the phrasing and how they're navigating that phrasing through the measures of the verse and how they're getting to a chorus and what are they doing to launch launch their into their chorus idea 
and how can I do, how can I launch that chorus with them and Mm -hmm. not over them? Believe me, man, I've messed it up so many times, (laughs) you know, get, you know, doing a, you know, a massive drum fill that just eats the vocal alive, you know? Yeah. So, um, I've heard myself do that on records that, you know, and I, I just, I became really sensitive to vocal phrasing, uh, Early on, I mean that's kind of the dynamic of the whole song. So I love it when a vocalist shows up and they're in it for a scratch vocal. Yeah, you know sometimes we don't even get that. You know when that's there, I crank that vocal. Interesting. You so know, you're using I, the vocal is informing you. The vocal is informing me if it's being if it's a performance mm-hmm. and they're going for it. Yeah, that can inform me musically. dynamics and just the shape of the song rhythmically it's it's all there it can it it can or you know um yeah it can you know but sometimes not always you know it's just there's no written rule about that really sometimes the rhythm of a vocal could be slow and flowing yeah and it could be like this kind of world peter gabriel vibe underneath it that's really creating a busy rhythm mm-hmm. that's that's kind of a pad that's allowing the vocal to to soar mm-hmm. over you know so there's there's a lot of different ways to look at that you know? i was i was reading a list of some of your who you were listening to and some of your influences from an uh, 2009 interview you did with steve gould yeah and yeah. um a lot of those, man. I'm like, this guy's my spirit animal because <laughs> you like you mentioned Menu Cache and uh, all Peter Gabriel stuff, and yeah, that stuff is so amazing. And that that was, uh, yeah, it, it continues to inspire, especially the Secret World Live oh. uh, record is one. Hey, of my, me and you, man. It's like one of my Desert Island records. It's one of my favorite musical moments of all time. Super amazing. That, that totally speaking, and this is kind of ties in as well with what you're talking about. I grabbed a question and answer from that 2009 interview. Okay. Uh, a lot of it is great, but I, there was one in there that I wanted. I'm like, I'm going to plagiarize this, and I'm going to bring this up. Um, from Steve Gould's interview, 2009, he says, How do you approach fills? Are they premeditated, or are they just, or are you just feeling the moment? Yeah. And you, with multiple exclamation points, he writes, watch out for the vocal. Yeah. That's kind of what I was alluding exactly. to a second ago. Yes. You know, it, it, uh, I quickly learned after hearing myself do my cool drum fill <laughs> on records. Yeah. And it's like there's a vocal pickup or the yeah. end of a thought, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, well, there's a space there. So I, I need to put my boom, da boom, da boom in there. And, you know, I think, yeah. So again, it, the, the way the vocal transitions from section to section. Or ends a section, I think, is of utmost importance, you know. Because um, really, when I say the vocal, it's like the melodic musical statement that is at the forefront of this song. Yeah. So if you were doing a jazz gig, yeah, you know, it would be whoever's playing the head, whoever's playing the solo, yeah. you know. And, you know, so if it's an instrumental, you know, so the point being, you know, the, the, the melody 
is everything. The melody mm-hmm. and the contour of the melody and the rhythm of the melody, and that's that's what I try to intuitively tap into. But yeah, drum fills. So there's, you know, I've probably p- played the same drum fill, you know, 300,036 times, you know, in my life. But <laughs> it, at, you know, I'm a more, and to my, you know, failure sometimes, I'm a more in the moment guy. You know, I'm a more, uh, I try to stay more um, improvisatory uh, within within the boundaries and the structure of an already, you know, kind of three-minute song structure. Right. You know, I, you know I'm going to jump in that box of that three-and-a-half-minute song or what have you, knowing that there's different compartments within that song. Mm-hmm. We've got those different sections and we've got those different stops or those different hits or those different... But still, take that. Uh, say you've got your little chart in front of you. You know, it's mm-hmm. a little shorthand chart. Not telling you exactly what to play, right, right. but just kind of... I call that... I, I think of that as a portal, like um, into the song. Okay. And into the music. Yeah. It's not dictating to me what to play. It's just kind of the skeletal structure of that. And, and I'm going to put the meat on the bones, uh-huh, you know. Uh-huh. And in in so I try to be, as the take is going on, I try to stay in that moment of anything could happen, you know. And, and, you know, and that gets hard, you know. You know, it, you know there's certain... Obviously, certain situations that are more, you know, creative than others. Some Mm -hmm. are, this is what this is. Mm -hmm. It needs this specific groove, no drum fill going into the chorus. It needs to stay on, you know. I mean, there's some situations where that's what it is. Um, But when it's kind of a, a more open book, yeah, you know, I do. Uh, I, I'm. I, I try to stay in the uh, creating an arc. You know, creating uh-huh. an arc from the beginning of this thing to the end of this thing. There is a. There's a musical. It's a, it's a complete musical statement. Right. With little mini musical statements. Uh-huh. Kind of. Within that, being the the sections of the song or what have you, right. but try to think of like longer musical phrases and longer, like how did I get from the beginning to the bridge, like that dynamic, you know, like when I when I record, uh, when I record in here in my studio by myself, just overdubbing for people, I very rarely piece stuff together, I very rarely okay. punch, I. Um, I'll I'll do stuff longer than people will ever know about. I work on <laughs> I'll work I'll work on stuff to get that, you know, and that's I guess that's like the more old school traditional part of me uh that is more, you know, I kind of have a bit of a jazz background and I you know, but not like exclusively, you know, uh but you know, I, I some of that mentality of of just the the 
the journey through a song. Right. Well, so to unpack a couple of the things that you're saying, I think uh, sometimes a complaint about the way a drummer approaches a song, you might hear, man, it sounds like there's no shape. There's no dynamic shape to this. Like we're all in at the top of this song and it's, it's on 10 and we're on 10 the whole time until it ends. Yeah. And so I think that you're talking about creating shape, giving the listener a place to go, mm-hmm. a journey that offers variety to listen to. Mm-hmm. And in some styles and some genres, it, it's very, you know, this is cut and dry, this part. In fact, you could take this eight bars in verse one. Yes. It is exactly what we want for verse two. So let's cut and paste it, you know, and put it over there. Um, the problem with that, though, like I did a session this month for a guy that sent me the almost final part. He was just missing the drums. And verse two, he was leaning into the click a little bit harder. And there was, I noticed like there's no way that I could just play to the click throughout the song. Right. I had to lean into it a little bit more yeah. because this was his final guitar part. Yeah. An eighth note pulse. Yeah. Parts. Yeah. That, uh, there was no cutting and pasting going on yeah. with that. And now you're speaking my language. I, I actually prefer. I, I mean, obviously, yeah. after all this, this is the arc of the song and dynamics mm-hmm. and beginning to end that I'm where you're, you're hearing me say, dude, I, I love that. I, I actually. Even if verse two is the same drum groove, same parts, even same fill, it's going to be different. Yeah, I like adjusting. And you're not going to be able to uh, take verse one drum part and put it in verse two drum part, uh-uh. and it, it, it... Sit. Yeah, you might be able to look at it on the screen oh, and God. go and say, okay, well, that drum part's correct because it's just dead on the grid, you yeah. know? And in some cases, that's important. Again, we're talking about, you know, some music is just grid music, man. It's just, that's <laughs> what it is, you know? It's just gridded, you know? And and then, you know, and what we're talking about is these little nuances mm-hmm. that, and it's all dynamic, it's all um, placement, it's all, you know, like you're saying, that that guy was, he got, he was ahead of the click, you know, mm-hmm. not, not in a bad way, no. but musically, yeah. he was like, we're in verse two now, yeah. I'm saying something different, this song has evolved from verse one, yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's that's my heart, man. I yeah. mean, you're speaking my language there. Yeah, you know? no, I, he he didn't get off the click. There was just a there was just enough of a feel, enough of an intensity and a new a new energy that was happening there. That um, probably 20 years ago I wouldn't have acknowledged, and I would have been like, I'm playing right to the click. What's wrong here? Yeah. Um, but there was something about it that uh, told me there's there needs to be uh, verse two needs to be treated a little bit different than yeah. verse, verse one. In that case, man, communication is very important because you touched on something. You know, like y- you said, like you had knowledge 
that that was the final guitar part. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the stuff that I play to, okay, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in that case, like I'm gonna, I'm working on something this afternoon, um, and I've already listened to it. It's it's the acoustic and a vocal, uh-huh. and I'm gonna. I'm I'm the launching pad, then we're going to pass it around. Okay. And the the acoustic part is just not consistent. Sure. It's a scratch acoustic part, yeah. you know. So I know that, though. Right. So what I'm going to – I have to so – it's a different kind of challenge. So what I have to do is, again, spend some time, get inside the song, you know, and in my – you know, and kind of – get to that musically to the point where I'm I'm in tune with the song and kind of have some ideas about what I want to do. But when it comes down to my performance, when I'm actually in the headphones and I've got my click and I've got a separate track of the acoustic guitar and I've got a separate track of the vocal, mm. you know, all of it's out of the pocket with the click. But I know that it's, you know, they're not keeping the guitar. Then I have to negotiate differently. I can't follow the guitar mm-hmm. that 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 pushes way ahead at the ends of phrases or whatever. Um, so are you adjusting your mix? Well, yeah. Then, then I have to. Unfortunately, this is this is this is the whole. It's the the whole challenge is that I have to uh, engage my imagination a lot and and know that I need to lock this thing down not be rigid and not be unmusical okay, but yeah. I, you know what I'm saying sure. I need to the, at this point the click is kind of ground zero and not that guitar part whereas in your scenario you're mm-hmm. saying that that guitar part is ground zero ground mm-hmm. zero meaning for me like this is going to be the groove this is the groove you know and I need to adhere to that um, is it safe to say that drums tend to be ground zero? In some cases, yeah. In most cases, you know, probably. Um, uh, you know, again, you know, it just depends on the style of music. You know, like uh, if you're playing to a very sequenced music, when I've, which I've done plenty of, where the keyboards are, you know, yes. that's ground zero, man. Yes. I'm not. I'm. I'm the live element of quantized which is what they want they want some they want it to come alive yeah so you have to be able to be alive which is <laughs> imperfect yeah you know and adhere you know glue your part to a gridded part so mm-hmm. there's you know and and that's that's kind of part of modern uh recording uh, I think is is being able to uh, recognize, you know, where ground zero is yeah. and what what is that. it that we're doing here? Yes. Do you want it to feel alive or do you want it to feel gridded? Do you want you know? And I think just communication is so key in this world of passing things around. I like on the front end of things before I ever, you know, sit down behind the kit. Um, I probably talk to people more than they want to talk to me. <laughs> no, that's about, really that's like, really what encouraging you, because I think that that's a lot of us we're starting to do more home recording and we want to do a good job for somebody half halfway across the country to hopefully build a, 
create a new client. Yeah. And so to show them that you care, to kind of lay the groundwork that you're more than just the person that's going to lay drums, you know, like you're invested in them. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you balance that with being being professional and, and expedient and yeah. those things? But yeah, if, if they get the end result and they know that you're they're cared for, that's got to go. Yeah, and I think they're more likely to to really uh, appreciate what you send back to them after having the the pregame conversations with you and hearing your um, just uh, concern, not concern, but just your care. Exactly. You know, your care for 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 their song. You know. I came across a quote from Chad Cromwell from an interview that we did. Yeah, I just resonated with me. I've never really done this, but I, I was kind of like on the quote thing with, with interviews. And so I'm curious to get your reaction to what he said. He says, when you're in record, there's something that's supposed to happen mentally and physically with music that's elevated. The consciousness of it is elevated kind of like the difference between running a song down in a rehearsal or pre-production. Yeah. And then the engineer says, all right, we're rolling. Yeah. That. Sit mm-hmm. up in your chair. Neil Peart talks about he had the luxury to record wherever he wanted, but he would go to a studio with an engineer and everybody involved to do it because he said it just elevated my performance absolutely yeah the pressure and just to tie that in with the lack of pressure when you're at home by yourself Mm -hmm. yeah i put the pressure on myself i make it i i imagine it up i i've learned i've done it for so many years that you know i still you know maybe chad you know who deeply highly respect chad um and maybe he's talking about like the muse like Mm. when it gets in when it when the red light goes on we get in the muse and we've got our you know we've got uh you know our skill set we've got our sounds going we've got our our our, the correct snare drum up we've got our headphone mix the way we want it we've got the chart in front of us we've got all those things that stuff needs to melt away Yes. And and you you need to be able and that's what separates the men from the boys. That, you know, is uh, you know, to me is being able to get into the the muse of the, that creative space, you know, and uh, I guess man, you know, for me, you know, and I'm not talking when I say this, I'm not talking about religion. I'm just talking to like we're talking, you know, there's there's a spirituality to uh, to music, yes, you know, and um, you know, for me, without that kind of connection, where you you kind of go through the the tunnel of and leave behind these things, even though uh, you know, just like the logistical things of the physical, the physical things, and leave you're using that, but but elevate and rise above that, mm-hmm. you know, into, 
I don't know what's the word for it. I've used muse. There's the the spirit of it. The Arierto Moreira talks about like when he gets in the zone, he feels like he's communicating with a third world. Yeah, and I feel like that concept is so amazing because it can serve you well when you're in a tough situation where it's not your drums, it's not your mix, it's not your home base that. I think a lot of us tend to um, fall prey to, mm-hmm. like, oh, it's not my normal snare drum, or the mix was bad. Mm-hmm. Steve Gould and I talked about that, like a lot of people blame their mix. Oh, I didn't have a good show. Cause it's like, that's what separates Absolutely, the pros man. from the yeah. not pros, is that you have to rise above. And I think that what you're talking about, let that stuff melt away and start making music. Mm-hmm is such a wonderful and useful yeah. concept. I love yeah. that. And that's not that's where you kind of you you leave to me you leave behind not only those physical things but just the the fact that hey, I'm a session drummer, I'm a drummer for hire. This is my quote job. I want to do a good job. That all stuff that stuff all melts away too. You got to be able to let go of like all of that stuff and there's a higher there's a higher plane mm-hmm. um, to to perform on, you know. And to me, like for me, man, that's like my responsibility is mm. to be in tune with that mm-hmm. and to bring that to the table. And maybe that's a, a strength of mine and, and certainly, a, you know, to some extent I'd say it's a strength of every drummer that, you know uh, – is a, is a career long term, you know. There's something to the spirit of what they do past their snare drum sound. That's important too. Don't hear me wrong. I mean, all of those things are are very important, but they're a means to an end. They're all just like I told you about the chart. Is is basically, you know, that's not the song. The song is past that. The song is out here somewhere. Uh-huh. That's a portal to the song. Yeah. The, this, you know what I'm, does that make sense? You know, it does. I feel like there's a lot of, uh, and we, we, you know, we've discussed how there's just a, a, a new generation of talent that is really wonderful to, to see and hear. And um, we're all getting our butts kicked on a consistent basis in the drumming world. But, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say one of the things that has really been an education for me in the 20 years that I've been in that, been in Nashville is there's a sharp distinction between the people you see on YouTube or on the cover of Modern Drummer or something like that and those that are making records every week. And although you talk about I've got this bag, I've got this deep bag of things to bring to the table but knowing consciously how to get inside the song and create something that is so useful for the songwriter and the producer and every and all listeners involved is a skill that i don't think is discussed enough and yeah we'd all like to play like benny greb <laughs> yeah i mean that's great oh yeah yeah uh, um, it is great and it, it it's but i I know that I'm not going to play like him. <laughs> I know that's not going to happen. Me too, man. Yeah. But I know yeah. that I love music and I know that um, 
some of my favorite players are those that connect with a broader audience that goes way beyond the drumming community. Yeah. Like yeah. a Manuka Che. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, for me, man, I mean, you know, if you were going to ask me influences, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of my influences, hopefully this is tied into what you just said, aren't drummers. A lot of my yeah. inspiration of musically, like one of my biggest in- inspirations Pat it's Pat Matheny. Matheny. Yes. You knew I was going to say that. <laughs> I knew. You knew I was going to say that because, yeah, okay. So, you know, that, to me, to man, me as well. yeah, to, sure. when I hear him, when I hear it, particularly the, just anything he plays, but I, I particularly love the Pat Matheny group stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the, 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 the bands that he's had after that, too. But when I hear him play, man, I hear heaven. I hear like he transcends his instrument as as strongly as any musician that's that that my ears for me that's that you know ha, has heard I, I just you know he's one of those cats that just when he plays man i i feel like transported immediately into you know the, what we're talking about, just like like that other realm of like, dude, he just like went into, you know, a spiritual thing. You know, I mean, I've been to his concerts and uh, seen people like standing up and and like and like, you know, be, and 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 in, in a worshipful posture uh-huh. with yeah. their hands, you know, like right. you you might see in 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 a huge church today or sure. something, you know, and where, uh, you know, and it's not necessarily a religious environment, not sure, Christian, but there's not a much, connection. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's like that's what I'm talking about. Right. That's it's it's like this this you know other realm of you know of of uh, of. of stuff going on <laughs> that that's what uh, uh, I'm always hopefully I mean you try to I don't ever want to sound holier than thou about that but I always aspire to you know uh, bring that level of bring that um to the table yeah yeah, yeah no I, I feel you I think what's most important and, and, and a, a big takeaway for what you're talking about is recognizing how important that is to just tapping into the song. Mm-hmm. It's something that's not as considered as much. It's it's hard to it's hard to define, mm-hmm. um, and that's probably why it's not discussed enough. Yeah, I think another part of that is that sometimes. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to cut yeah, you no, off. Yeah, go but, ahead. You know, sometimes you know in and it's everything's so fast paced in uh, in in session world these days, you know. In the nineties, on some of the records that we talked about earlier yep. that I was a part of, you know, we might do two songs a day, right. one song a day sometimes, you know, yeah. like trying different drum sets, da, 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 whatever. One song a day where you really got to get into it. These days, you know. Man, even on even on a major label, big artist, you know, there's you you know in a three hour session, you know, you're probably going to do two songs. Yeah. You know, whereas you know, uh, you know. But what about a demo session? Demo session, you're going to do five or six. 
Yeah. In 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 a in a three hour block, which is basically thirty minutes a song. Yeah. I mean, they are what they are, but you know, I mean, the level of musicianship and skill set uh, here in Nashville. I mean, they ended up they end up sounding like records. Sometimes they become the record. You know, so to, uh, you know, however, the point being that uh, sometimes you, you, you know, going into the session that uh, especially being the drummer, I have a responsibility to lay this down, this thing down really fast and really efficiently and and solid. And then you have to really you, pull a lot together really quick. You're creating ground zero. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So. Sometimes you just kind of have to let go of some things, mm-hmm. you know, that you feel are important. Mm-hmm. But the function of the moment that you're in right now, though your personal feelings of what's important, it might not be what matters mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. You know, so when you get in the habit, which can happen. And you get in the habit of working really fast and, you know, thinking that uh, I need to, uh, you know, I need to lay this thing down fast, you know, so they can do their guitar overdubs. We've only got an hour to do the song, you know, and uh, then I think that creates what you're talking about. It creates, you know, it kind of puts the value of some of the other things that we've been discussing kind of on the back burner. Right. So your value system, what's valuable, kind of shifts, you know, and it's like getting it fast, getting it solid, having good sounds becomes sometimes more valuable than the the touchy-feely stuff that we're talking about that I love, but, you know, so (laughs) it's like, uh, you know. But I think being tapped into what makes music great gets you to that place faster because it allows you to let some of those other more mechanics and and uh, those other things melt away. Yeah. So you know if you're if you need to move fast and you're doing two songs in an hour, you're like, well, there's this really cool snare sound. You're like, no, I just need to use what's here. Uh, the engineer is busy with that acoustic guitar, mm-hmm. and so guess what? I'm going to live with this uh, too much keyboard in my mix yeah, so that we can get this it. going yeah. and let that melt away. Yeah. I don't feel like I have any voice of authority. I only have the voice of experience. And I would, uh, you know, I'll take a, a, I would rather listen to a man with a, experiential story you know experience mm-hmm. that this is i've experienced this in my life i'd rather listen to that than a guy with an opinion about something that hasn't lived it yeah, so yeah. so that you know like you know i'm uh that being said you know uh, uh i'm a tennessean i grew up in a small town tullahoma um uh, about an hour and a half from Nashville, southeast, kind of towards Chattanooga. And uh, so my early musical influences were just basically what was on the radio. This is obviously, so I'm 57, so this was before the internet. This is before you could push a button and reach the other side of the world. So my, you know, I 
my experience of music was just what was on the radio, yeah. which, you know, in the late 60s and the I'm a 70s music freak. In 70s, you know, it's like it was a little more genre-less than it is now. Okay. Like uh, radio, man, you know, it was just radio. And you would hear, you know, it just all different kinds of things in, in a one-hour setting. You know? Right. Anyway, so... You know, I come from a small town. I was surrounded by country music growing mm -hmm. up, surrounded by it. You know, I wasn't, you know, back then, country music wasn't particularly drum heavy. It wasn't, it wasn't drum driven, mm -hmm. you know. And I, I, I guess I'm, now when I say that, I'm talking about just like the, like the, the, the musicality of it, you know, like uh, uh, the, the instruments and what really was at the forefront. Like mm -hmm. drums are at the forefront. Yeah. Now, you know, yeah, right. it's basically rock, pop, drumming. Just you got to be a freaking good player to play country sessions these days. Yeah. You got to be a complete player. You complete know? player, yes. Because you're, it's not, you know, boom, cheek, boom, cheek, boom, cheek, which there's, that's way harder than you might think, you know. <laughs> But and not that not that I have any disrespect or, 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 or reverence for that because yeah. I absolutely do. But you know, anyway, you get the point. Right. So anyway, I don't know where I was going with that. But, <laughs> you know, I uh, you know I, I grew up in, in that town. I was in uh, you know uh, I got my first drum set when I was twelve. Uh, you know, it was just an old hand me down. I kind of taught myself how to play drum set. But then I got in junior high band and, you know, right. high school band and, right. and, you know, got into rudimental drumming and marching band. And then my high school had a, 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 a way above average jazz band, largely due to the band director was a jazz big band freak. So, you know, that kind of introduced me to the whole jazz world. And I as I, I, I kind of, you know. Um, you know, been surrounded by country music and and rock music and seventies pop and rock stuff. Um, uh, so even then, I started, you know, kind of um, being influenced by all of these different types of music. You know, and uh, and, and it it proved to be very valuable to me as. You know, I became a session player where I just believe that, you know, you know, a, a, a hat rack full of like different uh, hats that you can pull from. Mm -hmm. I've got my cowboy hat. I've got my my back my backwards baseball hat. I can pull out. Uh, you know what I mean? Of course. So musically speaking. So of course, your fedora. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, then you can combine them. You can say, okay, this is going to be cowboy and the bandana mixed together. You know, you, you can just it gets crazy. But but anyway, even back there, you know, I started. You know, I I, I was uh, introduced to kind of some of the the jazz fusion scene that was going on in the seventies. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Al Demiol and Jean Luc Ponty, and you know all the Mahavishnu and all the. You know, I started especially when I got into college. It, uh, which is where I eventually, by the time I was 16, man, I was like, okay, I'm going to play drums. You okay, know? yeah. And so I went, uh, I, I got a scholarship, and I actually got a full scholarship to MTSU, uh, uh, music scholarship. Okay. And um, I wanted to be 
I had already decided I wanted to be a studio drummer. And back then, at that point, this was 1980 when I graduated high school, uh, there was actually a target, you know, called studio musician. You know, it was a it was it was a target. It might be way off and it was a long shot, you know, like how many how many uh, how many kids want to be NFL quarterbacks? You know, Mm there is a job position called NFL quarterback. It's a long shot. You're probably not going to make it. Yeah. But you could you could. And that's the way studio musician is. Right. You know, right. It's that target is way off in the distance, but at least you can see it. Yeah. And there's a hope and a you know there's a there's a place to aim, mm-hmm. you know. And back then there was that. I I don't know if the younger generation now it's a little more fragmented now. I think it's harder to 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 aim, you know. At anyway, so um, when I got to MTSU, I I. Uh, quickly discovered that they were an education department at the time. They've evolved past that now, I know. But uh, anyway, I, I spent a year and a half there, uh, kind of dropped out of school because I just wanted to play drum set. I just wanted to play more drum set. I ended up transferring up to uh, UT Knoxville where they actually had a jazz program. Okay. Um, and a real famous jazz educator, Jerry Coker, was uh, – you know, the head of the jazz department there. And I had a great teacher. I want to say his name, Keith Brown. Um, he's, uh, he's kind of from the Ed Sof lineage of jazz education, drumming oh, wow. education. Yeah, sure. And, um, and he completely opened my head to uh, just more. He just, he was the first drum teacher, like my first real drum set teacher, that I had, and at that point, man, I locked myself in. I uh, I practiced. I was just like, just obsessed with uh, just becoming a professional. You know, becoming good enough to to to. I think I can do this. I'm going to be able to do this. You know, and, the studio drumming that was the target. Well, yeah, just even at that point, and being at the level of a player where you know. People would want to hire, pay me money, and hire me <laughs> to 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 play. I wanted to be a professional musician. Yeah. And yes, I wanted to be a studio player. Um, but to me, and especially back in back then, seventies, eighties, you look at the session players back then, the drummers that were that were knocking it out, and you know it was Steve Gadd. Yeah. And so you'd see Steve Gadd on like an Al Jarreau record or some kind of, you know, TV commercial or da 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 And then you'd see him playing with Chick Corea, mm-hmm. you know. Right. That's the kind of player that I was, you know, that that was my standard. Yeah. You know, right. that was, that was, you know, that's a pretty high standard. I ain't there. <laughs> I'm not there. But at least that kind of thinking was what was going on, you know, in my mind, right. to be a studio player, I'm going to have to be, I want to be, not have to be, because that sounds kind of negative. I want to be on the level to where I could do this. I could I could do A, B, C, D, D, you know, uh, I could be called for anything. And I'm going to be able to pull out whatever combination of those hats we talked about. And I'm going to be able to get the job done authentically and with the right spirit to it. And with, you know, so anyway... 
What were you doing to try and reach that goal? One of my biggest, and it's still to this day, I think one of my biggest uh, learning tools is listening. I have pretty, Mm. you know, pretty decent still listening habits. And um, I think think that's key is just like introducing your, being open-minded and introducing yourself to all things music you yeah. know and yeah. you, not to sound cliche but you know it's either good or it's bad i mean it's either well it's either on a on a deep it's it's either musical or it's just you know maybe not <laughs> you know this episode is brought to you by drumsellers.com the niche marketplace where drummers drum retailers and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. When I was in college, man, I was gigging, you know. I was, uh, I worked out at, when I was at MTSU my freshman year of college, I, I was at, I worked out at the Opryland theme park in one of the okay. shows there, which was a very, it was a reading gig, you know, and uh, like, all different kinds of like Broadway tunes and all this kind of stuff, you know, and I, you know, it was a great uh, self-esteem kind of ego booster for me. Cause it was like, all of a sudden I was like, Hey, I've got a summer job. I'm making, I look at this paycheck or, you know, and I'm getting to do what I love to do. So immediately the idea of this is my passion. This is what I love to do. I just got a paycheck for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So immediately the combining those two things that was like ding okay this is how i want to spend my life how lucky am i that i've gotten to do that i'm i'm a blessed man mm-hmm. that i have had a you know i've been here 31 years wow and from the day i walked in i've done nothing but play drums i i drove into nashville with a ford ranger and a beat up drum set and cracked cymbals and a twin bed. That's all I had, you know. And I started from scratch. So anyway, I kind of, you know, when I was at UT, I was playing in a top 40 band to pay my way through school. I didn't have a scholarship there. Okay. So uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't come from uh, any money or anything. So I had to, you know, kind of help what my parents were helping me, but I had to help too. So I was playing six nights a week, top 40 gigs, you know, while I was going to school. And uh, my first real road gig, uh, I never graduated because I got, uh, you know, I got real close, but was with a a, a mid-80s country star named Janie Fricky. Mm -hmm. And she, uh, at the time, was like country female vocalist of the year. You know, so it was like, you know, I, I had no experience in the real world, but her band all lived in East Tennessee. And um, when they would come off the road, they would come to Knoxville, which was the big city in East Tennessee, to to kind of go to the clubs and stuff. Right. And, you know, they're off and they're partying and whatever. Well, I was there working. Yeah. And so, I, you know, musicians talk and I got to meet them. So... Uh, you know, one thing led to another, that job came open and there I was. So I ended up doing two years and staying out there. And all of a sudden, man, I was like playing on Johnny Carson. You know, I was like, I 
flew for the first time. I had never flown. <laughs> I was playing, you know, with uh, all these famous bands, all these famous people. I was just like thrown into this fire of the real world of like, it was like, you know, zero to 10, you know, with nothing in between, you know, I mean, because she was at the, you know, she was huge. You right. Know? So we were playing like big gigs, yeah. you know, and so anyway, you know, uh, I, I still knew that uh, I wanted to eventually. Uh, actually, I really thought I was heading to L.A. You know, because that was where the music that mm-hmm. I was most, you know, just the the pop and rock that was coming out of L.A. at the time. You know, the the seventies and eighties. You know, uh, Picaro, John Robinson, Carlos Vega, Vinnie Caliuta, you know, all those cats. You know, Jim Keltner. Uh, you know, John Guerin, um, you know, I'm, I know I'm leaving guys out that are, are definitely an influence in me, but, and just, not just those drummers, but that music yeah. was, you know, really where I wanted to go. But I I just didn't feel like I was ready. And at the end of the two years with, with, with Janie, uh, I, I just thought I've got a little bit of connection in Nashville. I had some friends that I'd gone to college with and that, that were already living here. So um, I came here thinking, I just want to get like a year or two more maturity and and grow a little bit. I don't want to go out there and fall on my butt, you know. So, yeah, I never left. I came here and the town embraced me. And, you know, I'm a hustler. I hustled. I I have a really strong work ethic, which most of us do that are working drummers, working musicians. Um, but I worked my butt off. Um, you know, like at any given time when I first came to town, I might be involved in 10 different, uh, you know, aspiring singer songwriter, you know, bands that were just playing, doing showcases around town, you know, just doing gigs around town at all the clubs. This is before Broadway. There was no Broadway that didn't exist back then. Yeah, Um, it did, but it wasn't. No, it's yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was doing that. I was playing jazz gigs uh, around town. I was doing, uh, you know, corporate, you know, just, you know, gigs, you know, uh, for big corporate bands, doing big parties and things like that. So I was just eking out a living, you know, and it just it just happened really fast, you know. And I've had friends tell me, man, it happened really fast for you. It was really, you know, most people are looking at a five to seven year kind of climb, you right, know. Right, Man, you know, I moved here in 88, 90. I was like starting to get, you know, uh, starting to do some stuff, you know, starting to do some sessions. I had no no business being in some of the rooms I ended up in. <laughs> I had no, my experience was very low. You know, my uh, you know so, but uh, I think the town was ready for some some just different uh, approaches. And one thing that I think helped me in the beginning, hopefully this could be helpful to somebody sure. that's listening, is you know I didn't know the rules. <laughs> I didn't know you know like certain you know there's this 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 gospel world there's this southern gospel world there's this there's this uh, country world there's this you know more progressive country world there's like the old school country world uh, and so there were all these different 
uh, subcultures of, of circles of musicians and music going on. And I just didn't think like that. I was very, you know, I was thankfully just my instinct, my, my nature, you know, from my background was, you know, I just already had this bag of, uh, I, I can do the old school country thing. And then I can play a Chick Corea song, you know? Yeah. And um, did you find yourself bringing those different styles to the table and maybe bringing that more modern mainstream country to an old country gig? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, by accident. Uh-huh. Just because I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to do some things. Yeah. And, but I had enough of a musical instinct to know that mm, that might not be. So there, I would bump up against the, I would stay up against the wall, bumping up against the, mm-hmm. you know, pushing the boundary. Pushing the boundary. You know, but right. not okay. like, I'm going to push the boundary and be a badass or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, it wasn't like intentional, like rebellious. It was just an honest, you know, musical. I was just doing it the way that I thought. You were it, tapping into your muse. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, right. And so, I think that's one thing. I think the town was ready for that, um, yeah. and uh, I think the music was ready for that. And I feel like that's been one of the joys of my career is being a part of kind of seeing things kind of uh, you know evolve and develop into. You know, like I said earlier, man. I mean, these days, man, you got to be a player to be a working drummer in Nashville. You got to yeah. be a player. I call myself a fringe drummer. I'm like on the fringes of every circle in town. You know, I was never really like this guy that you know was like, "This is what he does," and you're going right, to get right. this most unbelievable thing from him, and he does this one thing unbelievably well, which I totally respect in people. But that's just not who I am musically. Yeah. So I think I used those my diversity as a strength. You know, my diverse background and my diverse musical taste as as a strength rather than I'm not the best at any one thing, you know. Right. But I'm 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 I can hold my own in a bunch of different things. I can go to this camp and speak their language. Right. Authentically. Yeah. I can go to this camp and speak their language. And then, you know. That really, you spoke about that with Steve Gould's interview, and that kind of, that resonated with me. Because uh, I grew up playing jazz and fusion. I think a lot of us do when you go the more education route yeah. of playing. Yeah. That's just one way mm-hmm. of, of doing it. And uh, when you do, you get introduced to the jazz pedagogy and things like that. And so we tend to follow our hearts in other styles of music, whether it's pop or rock or things like that. And so we feel like we're kind of jacks of all trade, but masters of none. And that pressure is put on us to find that thing that you do and do it really well. Mm -hmm. I, I picked that up from Kenny Arnoff. But also hear what you're saying, though. You're seeing, you're saying your diversification your, is a strength. I think so. Not only does it allow you to live in different camps and speak their language, but early on in your career, your ability to introduce new styles to the situations made you invaluable to mm-hmm. those scenarios. Wow. You know, I, I, 
I wouldn't put that uh, pressure on myself by thinking that about myself. <laughs> but, but no, I, <laughs> we'll do it. I'll do it for you. <laughs> no, but but I, I hear what you're saying. You know, I have people, uh, you know, I've, I, you know, drummers who have followed my career, you know, who might have come up in a certain genre saying, man, you changed drumming in in gospel music you know mm-hmm. when you started doing that and i've already explained what happened i didn't mean to i've already explained to you you know it's just like i had enough instinct to to understand the essence of the music but i i i i i feel like we all have a thumbprint man you know a musical thumbprint and i think that needs to be um being you know being able to balance putting your thumbprint on something but not too strongly okay. at times and being able to gauge how much of your actual yeah thing that yeah. you're injecting into this already established genre you know then then and I think where those two meet I think it's kind of a push and pull I think some some situations call for you to be a little more generic and less of your your DNA. And in some situations, it's just like an open book, man. It's like, Steve, the reason you're here is because we <laughs> want you to do your thing. Yeah. You know, and, and that there's a lot of responsibility either way. But I think being able to, uh, and it just comes from experience, just being able to gauge the room and feel the room out and being able to say more, you know, being able to. It almost sounds like the difference between like a Matt Chamberlain and a J.R. Robinson. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a perfect example. You know what I mean? Where example. where one guy is, is I mean, both amazed, like amazing mm-hmm. and, and heroes of mine. Mm-hmm. But uh, you, somebody has brought in, say, you know what this needs? This needs, this song needs Matt Chamberlain's sauce to take it to the next level, and it's going to be that vibe. Mm-hmm. This song needs foundation. It needs to be the best supported song possible. Yeah. Call JR. JR. Serious Pocket. You know, yeah. Serious Pocket from both of those guys. But, you you know, like you can't Matt, – Matt's got such a strong uh, DNA personality, you know. Yeah. Um, and he's made it work, but I think oh, what's deceiving yeah. – for a lot of us is that um, you do get called to do what you do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes that's what gets you work. And there's a lot of players that we listen to and we go, oh, I know who that is, before you even look at the liner notes. Yeah. And that's glorious. And we love that as drummers. I do. (laughs) Uh, But I think that it's also important to um, be able to adapt to the situation. But I think that also is a part of your bag. Mm -hmm. It's part of your situation is is knowing. And we've talked about that with several different uh, with several different guests is that serving serving the song being mm-hmm. being adaptable knowing that uh you're you're not the artist and you know i think this is important where we are right now because uh-huh. i think individuality i think uh, i want to see a comeback in okay. that you know i think I, it's there but i think that because of the car- compartment uh oriented music um that is kind of maybe current you know in some aspects you know where you know the part is kind of already implied and 
we just need you to do what we already know is supposed to happen, you know, then you can get A, B, C, D drummer to come in and they know that too. And it's going to end up essentially being very similar with not as much uh, individual, you know, like, you know, individual uh, uh, thumbprint, like when Manu plays a song, it's Manu. Yeah. When Stuart Copeland yeah. plays a song, it's Stuart Copeland. It's the art and the life and the heart and the passion and the experience and all and the musicality of Stuart Copeland. You know? Do you think that the advantage of that thinking and getting back to that strong thumbprint? Is what's going to save live drumming in the studio? I hope so. I hope so. I I think that once we get past the stage of dude can play on the grid better than anybody, that's the best fat snare sound I've ever heard. I have such a reverence and respect for all of that, but then then it becomes every record has that fat snare sound on it. And every record is on the grid. You take away the push and pull. You take away, you know, you know, like, you know, oh, gosh, man. You know, I was working with, you know, you know Jeff Picaro. Good gosh. You know, the, the, the you know, one of the, the most iconic, you know, pop music, musical pockets of our time. I mean, of, of in musical drum history. That was not gridded. <laughs> it feels unbelievable, yeah. you know. And I was asking, you know, Dan Huff, a guitar player, when he first came back to town from L.A., I was playing before he became a big-time producer. He was just playing sessions. I was playing with him, you know, you know, doing sessions with him. And I, I would just like, Gurmy, man. I would just like ask him about, what's it like working with Vinny? What's it like working with Bacaro? You know, I mean, what do they do, man? What do they do to make it so incredible? He's like, Bacaro, man, you know, there might be a whole eight-bar section that gets separated from the click. I, I don't mean you know, off, like turned around, yeah. you know, an eighth note off or anything, but just separated, you know? And he said, but the thing is, man, he is the groove and he will take eight bars and it'll come back, you know? And you, you know, it's like, you know, that's kind of, you know, it, what we weren't so, he wasn't so, that just wasn't part of our value system. At the, the the click wasn't God, you know. The yeah. the the grid wasn't the Holy Grail, yeah. you know. And I think it allowed uh, individuality and of musical course. expression to to happen, you know. When you didn't have that pressure of this has to be on the grid or you know whatever. Uh, don't get me wrong, man. I'm not against it. I mean, I, I work within that structure all the time, right? Every day, it's you know. Yeah, it's almost I just, required. I still, I even think in that, you know, you've heard me talk about kind of a hybrid concept, you know, of different musical styles and everything. I think even, even I, I apply that concept even to the modern idea of playing on the grid. You know, I still apply the, the, the hybrid of um, 
the arc and the dynamic and the da 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 within the mentality of 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 the super grid. Does that make sense? It yeah. does. And uh, uh, you remind me of something that that Matt Johnson said in an interview. He plays with Saint Vincent. He was on Jeff Buckley's record, Grace. Mm. He was Jeff Buckley's mm, drummer for a yeah. long time before Jeff passed away. Matt talks about working with someone like St. Vincent, a very modern music type thing with sequencers and very much a gridded type, even live performance. He said the difference between modern drumming and what was done before is sometimes tempo shifts would create energy and dynamics. Now, a modern drummer has to create energy and shape within this gridded type thing, if to use the same terminology. Which is, that's a challenge, man. I know, you but know, it has to be done. Yeah, it has to be done. So it's just a different, okay, that's part of our, the vocabulary that we have to learn and use now. Like, like I, I, I completely adhere to the idea of, uh, you can use tempo shift as a dynamic, it, it can it can actually make the f- song feel louder in yeah. a way yeah. by the chorus going up two beats. Even I'm a big time Dave Grohl fan, big time Foo Fighters fan, <laughs> big time Taylor Hawkins fan. And, you know, I saw in some interview, this is no secret, everybody knows it, but they would, you know, with I think at the time maybe Butch Vig was their producer or something. Is okay. it Butch Vig? Is that his name? Butch? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. And they would, they their songs aren't the same tempo. Their song, they doesn't start and end at yeah. the same tempo. They would tempo map their songs, and this chorus bumps up a click. The bridge bumps up two clicks. That when we get back down, but you never really notice it on their records because uh-huh. it's such such they're such incredible records and orchestrated so well and just you know uh, unbelievable you know but um you know that tempo shift uh, is important to the dynamic of that chorus that chorus is two beats faster and you know. Uh, uh, I, I like that idea of using that to. You but know, oftentimes you're energy. not. You're, but you. But we may not be in the position on a session to introduce that. You right. know, say, hey guys, what if we bump this? And you know, you're going to get. You know, oh, you're opening up a can if you do that. You know, right. you know, uh, right. it can, it can, it can. If it's your project. Well, if it's my project, <laughs> you know, yeah, I get, I, I totally hear what you're saying about the, the, the whole tempo as a dynamic, you know, yeah. He hates the accolade, but I'm going to, thanks to Paul Eckberg for uh, pulling the trigger to, to move this interview along. Yeah. Again, uh, Steve, you've been on my list since we started in well, 2015. Man, I'm honored. I'm honored. Um, and our list keeps growing and. So thanks to Paul for 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 uh, getting the ball moving with this and introducing some some ideas that he wanted to discuss. And I, I love it. So yeah, much. thanks, it's Paul. It's been really great. And and a tremendously gifted musician in his own right. That's, you know, that's he's great. and he's a student and he's humble. Oh my gosh, man! <laughs> I want to have a Paul uh, Eckberg heart. You know, just his humility and you know. He, he he's a good dude, you know. 
He and I, and probably everybody, wants to know about this space that you have. Okay. We, we talked about it a little bit, um, but definitely curious about it. And um, there's pictures that I was going to take, but you have some wonderful pictures on your website. I may use some that of those. outdated, embarrassing website. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the pictures are, you know, they are what they are. It's kind of evolved from there, but um, this is originally a two-car garage. And it started out with 18-foot ceiling. So I'm lucky. And that in itself is a big part. Are we looking at 18-foot ceiling? We're looking at about 17. Okay. You know, because it it got dropped, you know, the so the ceiling treatment, there's about a foot or a foot and a half more past that, past Mm -hmm. what you see behind the the treatment. Um, And, uh, you know, again, you know, when I... When we built this house, we've been here like 20, uh, 20 years. So when we built it, we weren't even recording in a computer yet, right? There was no computer recording. Pro Tools didn't exist. You know, it was it was still an analog world. So I really wasn't thinking that it was going to become what it's evolved into now, which is it's really a studio. It's yes. small, you know, but it's 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 a it's a it's a room. I mean, it yeah. sounds oh, it sounds on. legit, and so. Um, it, uh, you know, I kind of had a guy when I moved in, it was just a concrete floor and drywall, you know, and I put a kick and snare in here and I almost started, I was like, there's no way this will ever be able to sound like, (laughs) you know, anyway, the, the idea behind this was just, it was going to be my man cave. It was going to be my practice room, my jam room, like maybe a writing room, you know. And quickly at that point, I don't know at what point digital recording came into play, but, you know, there was the ADAT phase and like there were these hard disk recorders before we really got, it all happened fast. You know, it seems like to me getting in, you know, and I was right there at that transition phase, like with this room. And I quickly saw, you know, the writing on the wall, like, we're going to record like this. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like this, you know, light bulb, you know, and I started thinking more in those terms. And instead of it just being like a jam room, I thought it's going to be it's going to be the way we do it. I can do it. But. I was so spoiled with working with these world-class engineers in the session world and and playing on records and stuff. I just couldn't do it halfway. I couldn't buy, you know, uh, five cheap microphones and, and uh, you know, a bunch of, I'm not going to say any name brand because <laughs> that would be disrespectful, but cheap preamps, you know, yeah. and, and, and just say, okay, yeah, I'm going to record drums. I was too used to hearing myself run through APIs and Neves, you know, and whatever. And so and that's what I did. I just thought, I'm not going to do this thing where I buy cheap gear and then, you know, graduate, you know. seems like I just cut to the chase, man. I started with like eight, I bought eight API pre's, you wow. know, just immediately. Yeah. And, uh, you know, thankfully, shout out to my unbelievable supportive wife Lee she's been with me obviously you know uh, the whole way and was always supportive in this vision you know especially then when there it wasn't a concrete you know 
it wasn't really like a I've got to do this in right. order to to be a working musician. Yeah. Now I think it's like I got to do this to be a working musician. <laughs> you know. So I just anyway, it's evolved. It's been a work uh, an evolution. You know, in um, it's evolved, but it started at a high plane. It did, yeah. I, I got. I was really lucky, kind of. Uh, you know, I was maybe on the cutting edge. I guess uh-huh. I've never really. I have a hard time thinking of myself as you know. You know, I, I was there. I was one of the the beginning. Uh, uh, I'd say when it really started happening, I was kind of in that wave of people who were on the front end of that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and. Uh, you know, I, I've I've used uh, good, great, great engineers to help me along the way. So uh, I'm I don't think of myself as an engineer. Um, I've learned over the years. I can do things because I'm here by myself a lot. But um, I'm not like this deep. Pro Tools editor. I do very little editing. I like to play a song from beginning to end. <laughs> right. I, I punch very little. Um, but uh, uh, so I think that I think the size of the room is what gives it the feeling of uh, you didn't cut this in your bedroom, dude. You cut this in, you know, a real, you know, it feels to me, it feels like as good as good. There's a lot of situ- uh, big-time pro situations yeah, that I'm in yeah. and better than some, you know, and I don't don't take that negatively, engineers or studios. I just, <laughs> I just, you know, it's a legit drum room, you know. It is. It's amazing. And, and you have some treatment on the walls mm-hmm. and you've got some uh, different angles and things like that. Which what? is really important, yeah. I think the idea there was, first of all, I had, it was out of control. So... My idea with all of this was to balance the room out, but not make it completely dead, but, you know, kind of have a balanced thing. Yeah. Um, here's here's a really good tip, man. Okay, so um, these, these, these panels that I have up on the walls, which you guys can't see, but maybe there'll be some pictures. There'll be some pictures. You know, sure. the panels, the black panels that you see are... They're just kind of like wooden frames that are filled with insulation, and they're movable. They're hanging on a lip, like they're hanging on a lip up there. So I can just lift up, boom, and take it down. Oh, wow. And I can move it around. Yeah. So I don't do it very often because the room's pretty balanced out. But if Did I'm you really, at first? Huh? Did you experiment with that at first? No, I just had this idea I want it to be like this because I want to be able to, if the room, if it's not right... Yeah, and I spent thousands of dollars on 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 uh, on treatment. You know, then I'm then I'm broke, and my drum room still sounds like crap. You know, <laughs> so this way, all of these panels can move. They're all just on a lip. Even the wooden ones. I so see some that. Of, some of the panels are wooden, and some of the panels are just, and they're all homemade. I mean, I had a guy do it that really killed it he built this whole stage thing he did all he built this which came later years later this wasn't in the original Uh uh, setup but um so anyway 
Do you ever do percussion or anything in the ISO booth? Or is that just primarily for? It's primarily for like an acoustic guitar. Okay. You know, when if I've got a full band tracking, right. you know. Okay. But it's it obviously dead. So yeah, I have. Okay. You know, um, and um, I guess you know the room is big enough to where I can really uh, use room mics. And uh, so I've got several different room mic options, which some people might use, some people might not. I've got, you know, like ribbon mics, coals as a stereo pair that are kind of colored in sound and maybe, you know, um, on purpose kind of meant to be a little vibey, you know, and kind of on the darker side of things. Then I've got a, a stereo set of room mics. They're 414s. They're basically just flat. And they're basically just, they just sound real clear and real just like, this is what the room sounds like. Yeah. It's not compressed. It's not, it's not filtered or it's not squashed or it's not. These are about 10, 12 feet away from the drums. Yeah. 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 And then I've got, uh, I've got a mono room mic that a lot of people do. That, that ribbon mic right there. And that guy, that guy kind of migrates around the kit depending on how I'm feeling on any okay. given day. But it's just that gold ribbon mic right there. Oh, I see it. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's just kind of like, that's the one that's like crunched. You know, I'll distort it, compress it. You know, it's kind of like a bonus mic, you know. Mm. But, I mean, it can really add a lot of vibe, especially to more modern stuff. Uh, you know, uh, it, can, it can add that kind of compression compression that just makes the snare drum kind of go wow man that's that's awesome yeah it's sitting right in front of the kit well kind of like you know between the hi-hat and the snare so like a foot and a half from the snare Mm -hmm. does it live there or is it just sitting there now no it's living there right now it's a good balance right now um and it there's certain times well i'll get it right up right in the snare when i want it to be more of a really really like when I want it to, when I call it the Chad Blake. Chad's like an engineer. I love his drum stuff that he's engineered over the years. But he's worked with Gabriel, Peter Gabriel. Oh, wow. Anyway, you know, when, when I want like some kind of like super, you know, distorted or whatever sound, um, I'll move it up in there, up into the, close to the snare, almost like a, a second snare drum mic. Describe that mic again. That is, it's just a, it's a cascade, uh, uh, I forget the name of it, mm-hmm. uh, um, it's, the brand is cascade, but it's it's a ribbon mic, you know, okay. it's kind of warm and full, and it's the kind of mic where you can kind of get a whole drum kit sound on yeah. it, like if you just put it like right over your shoulder, which I do sometimes, uh-huh. just put the microphone, uh, just kind of like drummer's perspective, you know, mm-hmm. this is what it sounds like from from my ear. Yeah. Put the mic right there, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes, um, which is a good practice as far as uh, internal dynamics and learning how to, you know, kind of not hit cymbals too hard. Da, da, da. We, we all know that routine of trying to make the drum set speak musically uh, just without any microphones. am I going to say this, you know, appropriately? Because I haven't thought about this much, but I value and, and have a reverence for the work that that we do as musicians, particularly making records and, and um, 
the process of that. And this is maybe a little old school mentality, but uh, there's a real uh, reverence and um, there's, there's, there's something kind of valuable to me to not letting people, not shouting it from the mountaintops um, where you're working today and who you're working for uh, until the music comes out. I think mm. there's a certain uh, mystique and a certain, uh, again, to use that word, reverence to the 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 the, the dignity of of the 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 process of making this music. That's our that's our life's work. It's meaningful work, and you know, so. Okay, I'm not trying to be holier than now with that kind of thinking, but that is a part of the way I think. It just is. And so, you know, when you juxtapose that against, you know, kind of like the snapshot, hey, I'm working at Sony today, and then, 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 then you know, like, and then tomorrow, hey, I'm working at, da, 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 and this is, look at my drum set. And, you know, it's just kind of like those two different worlds colliding to me sometimes. You know, I yeah, kind of, yeah. and, and, and I know I know I'm being a, maybe a little exaggerated and and maybe sounding disrespectful towards the whole uh, self promotion thing. Mm-hmm. I do not mean to be. I just think it's a culture. Um, it's a it's a it's a part of uh, the generation that you know. At this point, for me, there's two or three generations of studio players that are younger than me that are making their mark and doing incredible work. You know, I just think it's a part of their, their, the way that they function. It's part of their DNA. Yeah. It's a part of of their, they came up with it, man. It's the way that you communicate. Yep. And I've had to adapt to that and, you know, and take this idea of it being this totally like, like not secretive, but just kind of like this mystique and just kind of like, you know, I've said it, right? Have I communicated yeah. it? You well? have, and I uh, think that it's possible that this this useful tool gets distorted. Yeah, it gets abused. Yeah, to the point where it becomes less effective. Yeah, where it could be a really good thing, and I think you're letting your work speak for you. I think I have. There's times that social media is is useful in finding work and people finding you. Mm-hmm when you don't have quite the history or the body of work that someone like you would have. So mm. for me, social media has its merits, but I also I'm just kind of one generation just below you, so I'm kind of in that middle ground. I yeah. didn't grow up with it, so my feeling towards it is just, it just seems less important. So it's been an interesting experiment that we're all trying to navigate. Yeah. I've got enough experience at this point to where I feel like uh, I have things, meaningful things to say. Yes. We all do. We all do. We all have a voice and we all have, you know, um, it's a privilege and an honor to to actually verbalize mm. some of the things that you don't often, that you might feel on the inside, but that you don't talk about a whole lot. So, uh, you know, for me, for me, that's yeah. the way it is for me is that I I haven't really dissected a lot of my why I do this or how I got to here how did how I got from you know mm-hmm. it's just kind of like been a a, a fast <laughs> 
fast-paced, evolving process. And I'm glad you, you can verbalize the stuff because uh, it's. I'm thinking about all these things that we experience as drummers, surrounded by guitar players and engineers and other people that that probably would wouldn't want us to be talking about this. <laughs> don't care, oh, and then yeah. we go home. And our partner doesn't care in the least bit. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. So this is this is like therapy, man. This is. This I feel like I should pay you for today. Well, that's that's going to be the next thing. <laughs> I was going to. No, yeah. man. No, no. But Steve, thank you so much, man. Mm. I, I appreciate this. Man, you are welcome. It's my my treat for sure. So there's my conversation with Steve Brewster. Steve Brewster is a name that I've known since I've moved to Nashville in 2000. He is very much a part of the Nashville recording scene and straddles the line between country and CCM and everything in between. His sound is undeniable. I love the idea that he talks about we need to have more individuality reintroduced into the drumming community. One thing that I mentioned in the introduction was that Steve went a couple years without playing live at all. He was so busy working as a session player. We didn't really talk about it, but after the microphones were turned off, he did mention this to me, uh, and I thought it was worth mentioning. Steve went so long without performing because he was so busy as a session drummer. When he went out and started playing with Peter Cetera, he said it was just such a change. He was so out of his comfort zone when he did that live performing. I thought that was really fascinating. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Aquarian's own Chris Brady. We're just starting to get the word out about the Music City Drum Show happening August 8th. The podcast will be there representing. If you are in town, come and say hello to us. But as always, we appreciate you listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye. <laughs>